Good morning, Emmanuel. Let's uh, begin our sermon today through prayer. Lord, we ask now that you would open the word of God and help us understand what you are speaking in the moment we are living in. We thank you for the great book of Daniel. We pray that you would reveal it to us by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're not already, please take a seat. Today we're going to begin our series in the book of Daniel. It's called Prayer, Politics, and the Power of God. We're going to spend 13 weeks in this book, and it's going to take us all the way through the fall, including this fall election season. Now, you might be thinking, feeling, Father Aaron, why are we touching politics during an election season? Are you attempting to politicize the pulpit and the church? And I just want to say right off the bat, nothing could be further from the truth. I have no hidden aims to influence you politically or even to sway current events. No politician or platform will be endorsed or denounced, either directly or indirectly. There will be no subtweeting of politicians or platforms. If there is an event I want to speak to, I'm going to go ahead and do it directly and frankly. Um, The goal of this series is not to influence political events. Um, Rather, the goal is to equip you to love God and neighbor in a year when almost everything is politicized. So here's one reason I love the book of Daniel. It is apocalyptic in the original sense, which is the sense of revealing or pulling back the curtain to reveal what's actually happening. Um, Daniel reveals, pulls back the curtain so that we can peer in and see Jesus and his kingdom. Each chapter of Daniel really is apocalyptic in the sense that um, it's going to help us see the unseen kingdom of Jesus um, ruling over history, which is one thing that gets lost so many times when we pay too much attention to what we can see in the visual world and in the visual world of politics. A vision that Daniel gives us is what we need to be equipped with perspective when all of politics seem to be focused on the next election. A vision of God's kingdom is going to resource us with hope and courage in in a time when both are in short supply. Daniel is going to pull us up from the immediacy of the political moment that we're in and helps us see history from God's perspective. He's going to get us out of the crazy-making news cycle And he's going to speak in larger chunks of time, 70 years of time, 500 years of time, and even all of history. Um, So if you are sick of toxic politics, the book of Daniel is medicine for your soul. If you're starving for a word from God uh, amidst all of the other messages that are manipulating you, Daniel is a meal for your heart. If you are weary of images of violence, and strife. Daniel will, hey, admittedly, this is a favorite phrase, baptize your imagination (laughs) with images of peace and true justice and a sorting out of all of human history. So the book of Daniel has two halves. The first half is primarily stories. And these are some of the stories that if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you may have heard the stories of like Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace or Daniel interpreting dreams from the king that was troubling the king. That's the first half of Daniel. The second half of Daniel are visions. Visions like the ancient of days, a 
um, and a divine human figure receiving a kingdom. World powers, pictures as creatures coming out of the sea and a holy day of resurrection of the dead and purifying judgment before God's holy throne. Now, the first half of the stories have plenty of visions in them. And the second half of visions have plenty of stories in them. But that's essentially how the book is divided up. In all of these stories and visions, we're going to see Daniel and his friends exercise political influence, real political influence. Um, They will also share the gospel in a cross-cultural setting. And they're even going to navigate spiritual warfare together. My hope is that as we study this book together, both the first half of the stories and the second half of the visions, we will be filled with hope and stability and confidence, the power of the Holy Spirit, the hope of the gospel. Um, If that happens, I believe that we too, as a church, will become apocalyptic in the original sense, meaning that we as the church will reveal Jesus. We will pull back the curtain So that if our city wants to see the true and lasting kingdom, it will be able to look at the sacramental reality of the local church and go, oh, that's what the kingdom looks like. The one I've always longed for. The one I've always hoped for. So if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this series, this series is going to help you better understand how the power of Jesus is unique from the power of any other ruler. And that's what we're going to talk about today is What does the power look like? The power from on high that comes from Jesus and his kingdom versus the power that comes from below that we are used to seeing and and we're used to navigating. Um, So the power from below is actually how our text starts. How does Nebuchadnezzar, who is arguably the most powerful and the most dominant ruler of his time, exercise his power? And then how does the power from on high, the power of God, interact with and counter the power of Nebuchadnezzar? One of the first things that uh, the power from below is going to use is what we might call hard power. Hard power. And that's described in the first two verses of our text, Daniel 1. So if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along as I read the first two verses of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, small g God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his small g God. So this is hard power. Hard power is smash mouth, ham-fisted, force, dominance, violence, attacks through the front door, um, threats that leave people feeling traumatized um, so that they have to comply. This is power by force. We might picture hard power as like a baseball bat, a bat that you carry around just so that Either you can use it on people, you can really literally damage them into submission, or simply symbolize the fact that you're willing, you are willing to damage them psychologically, physically, verbally. It's the way of threats and dominance. 
Um, someone referred to lawsuits as middle-class violence. That's like the hard power. It's, it's a baseball bat. It could be simply a sarcastic comment or a critical remark or a subtweet going, yeah, I'm watching you and I will punish you online if you step out of bounds. Now, as king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was arguably the most powerful leader in the 6th century BC. He had enough horses, armies, swords, and clubs to surround Jerusalem and destroy it in the year 586 BC. Uh, this week, I met a neighbor who came to Chicago after their city in the Middle East was overtaken by force. A once peaceful city for them became a war zone. I was so grateful just to know they made it to our neighborhood. Um, and it hit home for me like they've lived through a war in a way that I never have. And we should just imagine living through a war. Maybe you're listening and you have. Maybe you're listening and you haven't. But imagine your neighborhood being taken over by tanks, bombs, fighter jets, sirens going off. And it's not a test anymore. It's a real siren because there's a real bombing. Imagine taking shelter at 3 a.m. with your kids. Imagine the market where you used to buy groceries, like the farmer's market, becomes a battle zone where you can only dodge bullets. In verse 1, this is what Nebuchadnezzar did to the holy city of Jerusalem. He surrounded it. And then in verse 2, he takes the king captive and he ransacks the temple. Um, so we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple to the ground. This is Solomon's temple, the one that David dreamed about and fought for. The one that, like, the people of God gave their, gave sacrificially of their, of their, of their, uh, of their wealth to equip the temple to be a place of worship. Do you know how traumatizing this would be? Your city walls being absolutely destroyed. Your holy places of peaceful worship being burned to the ground and all of the valuables that represent your life work, that represent your holy act of worship unto the living God, being taken, like stolen, and devoted to a false god. How could you ever speak of God's plan after that? How could you ever speak of God's kingdom when everything you did for God's kingdom was undone? in a brutal, sacrilegious way. And this was a major question for Israel that they spent, it, like there was a lot of soul searching after 586 BC for Israel. They never forgot it. Um, and it's a major question that Daniel's going to speak into. He's going to speak directly into this question of like, where is God when people use hard power to destroy the kingdom of God? So this is why the book of Daniel has become a treasure whenever God's people are in uncertain circumstances, when all around them is getting shaken, when history begins to rumble under their feet, when God's people suffer loss, they've opened the book of Daniel again and again and just read its pages and drank in the truths therein. We might ask the question like, why don't, why, why don't the tanks roll in more often? Why isn't there more war? Why haven't atomic bombs gone off in the last 70 years when, in fact, they've increased in number? 
Um, well, it requires a lot of sacrifice. It's very expensive to use hard power. And when you use hard power, it forms deep-seated resentment, and then often it suffers a backlash. So hence the phrase, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, right? Hard power is the vinegar. So you and I are more accustomed to the honey approach, to the soft power approach. And that's the second way that the power from below dominates our world. We can read about hard power in verse 3. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his royal eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Okay, so here King Nebuchadnezzar asks one of his chief lieutenants, Ashpenaz, to skim the cream off the top of of Judean society. And so Ashpenaz uh, selects the elite members of Judah, the leadership class, people with talent, people with privilege, people with a strong intellect, the Ivy Leaguers of Judah. Now, why would he do this? Why wouldn't he just kill them too? Well, he probably wants to exploit their talent. That's probably part of the reason that Nebuchadnezzar chooses these intellectual, capable, gifted leaders. Um, He needs to staff his growing empire, right? And as they say, talent doesn't grow on trees. So he needs them to advise him and administrate his plans. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar wants to assimilate these people. This is soft power at work. Nebuchadnezzar picks the flower of Israel's next generation talent, and he teaches them how to think and whom to love. Verse 4 refers to youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. This is colonization at work. Um, You take the most promising leaders while they're still young and moldable. So they're old enough to show their leadership talent, but they're young enough to be moldable, and you get them at just the right age, and then you teach them all about your culture, You teach them to speak a more elite language. And then as they begin to change their loves and their behaviors, everyone who looks to them for leadership, everyone who receives influence from them will then begin to also speak the language, adopt the culture. It filters down. So we did a quiz last week. Here's a little pop quiz this week. Am I French or Italian? What's my nationality? Make a guess in your head. And I will say that most people think that I am Italian. They see my pale skin. They see the stubble. And they hear my last name, Damiani. They go, well, you you must have Italian heritage. And yet my great-grandparents thought of themselves as French people. And they spoke French. So what gives? Well, my ancestry comes from Corsica, which has layers of colonization upon it. The first layer of colonization was Italian. Um, People of Corsica spoke Italian. They were ruled by the kind of the city-state of Genoa, which was Italian. Um, But then eventually, the people revolted. And in the Treaty of Versailles, the island of Corsica was given over to the people of France. And then France colonized it. Undoubtedly, France took the flower of Corsican leadership, taught them how to speak French, 
taught them about French culture, and guess what? It ended up that the winemakers of northern Corsica, my ancestors, guess what, spoke French, thought of themselves as French. And now people are confused by my identity. Um, so this is soft power at work. Teach the language, teach the culture. Now, this is really interesting what the king does in verse 5. Because this isn't just formation of oh, what language you speak. This is a formation of who you trust and what you love. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, this is a powerful formation program. For three years, who will you receive your daily bread from? For three years, which mountain will you ascend to receive instruction from on high? This is almost like an anti-covenant meal here. Yahweh, you know, he invited Israel up on the mountain to eat with him, to see his face, and to receive his laws. Now here you have the king going, why don't you come on up to my inner circle, receive my food, receive my drink, and receive my instruction. And then at the end of three years, appear before me. This is what uh, one person called the University of Babylon. Forget all the formation that you had in your backwater, religious, small town land of Judah and, and um, Jerusalem. Come up to the elite land well, you'll, you'll learn not just the, the uh, um, explicit curriculum, but also the implicit curriculum of how we do things around here. How much wine do we drink? How much food do we eat? And what do we really think of the gods? This is formation of the soul, of the habits. So at the end of three years, the Israel's most promising leaders, the next generation of cultural gatekeepers will stand before the king of Babylon. They'll eat like him, they'll drink like him, they'll think like him, they'll talk like him, and they will worship like him. And that's the point. And this is soft power. It's not just, it's not just ransacking the city. It's ransacking the soul. And we have soft power influences over all of us all the time. Um, and most of the time, it comes in the form of gentle nudges, doesn't it? Do you ever feel the soft, gentle nudges of soft power in your life? I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday about, you know, you're having a conversation about something, and then the next day, a really fishy ad shows up in your Facebook feed or on a website advertising services that you were talking about. Or what about the apps that are free to download and use, and yet they serve up ads along the way that eventually get you towards a purchase, or just collect all your data and sell it without telling you? What about, on a more personal level, the thrill, the secret thrill of being invited into an inner circle of friends, a new inner circle of friends that have more prestige than you do? And you find that they police behaviors that you once thought acceptable, and they normalize behaviors that you once thought out of bounds. And you find yourself becoming maybe a little bit of a different person the longer you hang out with them. Soft power can be the gentle numbing effects of pleasure. Food, porn, sex, sugar, entertainment, drugs, 
that seem to not cost you a lot at first, but over time, you find yourself becoming a little bit of a different person with different tolerance levels, doing less and less of what you thought you would do with your life and just hiding out more and more. Soft power, it's the temptation to project an online persona that is kind of divorced from who you really are in person, but it gains you followers. Maybe you're able to monetize that online presence. Soft power can be ways that systemic evil is just hidden from our life, never to inconvenience us as long as we don't ask any questions. Soft power is never having to reckon with government corruption or prisoner abuse or abortion clinics or police brutality because it's cloaked from the sight of polite society. Soft power is a fight for influence over hearts and minds and habits. It's a fight for your and my sense of who we are, what we stand for, and it is everywhere in our world. We cannot live a day in a global city without influ- or on the internet without experiencing the influence of soft power. Soft, pa- soft power happens to be less costly and more effective than hard power. Tweets are cheaper than tanks. And disciples are more durable than drones. And so more people use soft power in our world than hard power. And that's why it's more likely to shape us. Um, So who gets to influence you? Through hard power or soft power? Who uses threats or flattery to shape you and win you and include you? Who do you look to uh, teach you how to live your life, how to overcome the challenges in front of you. Um, those are the places where soft power is at work. And at first, it's kind of like it's free and it's available and it's cheap, but it's costing you something a little bit more precious, which, which is your wholehearted personal attention and your habits and the sense of who you are. Nebuchadnezzar is not a dumb guy. He knows about soft power. So he renames his young talents from Judah. I mean, this is insidious. Verse six, among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, where Jesus will come from. And listen to what he does. Verse seven, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. And this is so insidious. These young men were named after the living God of Israel. If you look at the etymology of their names, they were made up uh, of like designations for God. Like Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Now, the Babylonian leader whitewashes their Israelite identity and names them after pagan gods, variations of Aku and Nebo and the moon god. So he's totally dominating Jerusalem. He's totally dominating uh, Judah. He has uh, tanks and temples and hearts and minds and habits campaign 
and the Babylonian empire is subsuming everything that God's people have worked for. So where is God? Where is God when everything that you've worked for on God's behalf has been taken away? Does God even have a plan? Um, If I were Daniel and his friends, I would probably be shaken and discouraged. The temple has been grounded to dust, and I've been renamed after a false god. Um, So they probably felt temptation to just capitulate. I mean, it's like, get with the program. Get with, like, you have a way forward. You have a promising career ahead of you. Just get with the program. Don't subvert it. Um, Maybe you're feeling defeated and discouraged as well. Does God have a plan? You know, evil people can seem to triumph, not only on the global stage, but even in petty places like condo association, boardroom meetings, the break room, the annual vacation time with extended family, or we ever are spent, we spend our time online. Um, there is a constant fight over influence and positional power wherever we are. And we can get caught up or corrupted in the process ourselves. So there seem to be like, where are the leaders we can trust? Is there, are there any leaders that we can trust? Is there anyone who will represent God's vision for the world? Or is this just a never-ending power struggle? Um, so this is where I want to talk about the power from on high. The power from below is insidious and cruel and is just a dogged fight over influence. The power from on high is so different in its nature. So let's look at that together in verse 2. Back in verse 2, we need to notice that it is the Lord, it is Yahweh, that gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels in the house of God. Now, how could God be behind this atrocity? I want to tell you this. I want you to never forget it. God has ultimate power over human history, and he will not be mocked. This is power from on high. A hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar rolled in with his tanks, or whatever the, you know, 6th century BC version of tanks was, a hundred years before that, you know what happened? King Hezekiah was uh, visited by foreign dig- uh, dignitaries from Babylon. So people from the city of Babylon came to, to greet him. And really they were spying. But it went to King Hezekiah's head. And he was like, you know what? You know, I'm feeling better. I've recovered from my illness. And I want to show you guys something that's going to blow your minds Walk with me into the temple treasury. Look at all of this awesome stuff. Don't I have awesome stuff? Aren't we like awesome friends? And they're like, oh yeah, Hezekiah, you're like, you're so cool. You're so rich. And Isaiah confronted him um, for showing off God's temple treasures as if it was his own personal treasury to try to win them over in his charm campaign against Egypt. And Isaiah spoke this to Hezekiah. Hear the word of the Lord of armies. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, thus says the Lord. So King Jehoiakim is the last in the line of this long, corrupted covenant-defying group of leaders that thought they could get away with it. 
They thought they could show off their treasures. They thought they could play Egypt against Babylon. They thought they could run God's kingdom in their own fleshly way. And God will not be mocked. Hezekiah was proud. Jehoiakim was proud. And yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was proud. We'll see that in coming weeks. And yet God is perfectly willing to let the pride of one man be the humbling of another. God will use anybody to humble everybody. Nebuchadnezzar humbled Hezekiah. 70 years later, Cyrus humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And after that, Cyrus got his comeuppance. So at the end of history, everyone with a proud heart, everyone who got away with it, will be humbled once and for all before the ancient of days. Power from on high will humble the power from below. And so it's worth asking, like, who among us could, could stand on that judgment day? If we're honest, we've all let soft power and hard power bully us, influence us a little bit too much so that we could get what we wanted. All of us at one point or another probably thought, I'm going to get away with this. So none of us could stand on judgment day. None of us could stand before a holy God uh, who would never abuse his power. And so here's where the power of God is such good news compared to the power we're used to, to dealing with. God knew that none of us could stand on judgment day, so he sent the power from on high. And it was such a humble power. It was the power of humble King Jesus taking on human flesh, taking a demotion, and then going to the point of humiliation of a smear campaign and to a uh, humiliating death in public view. And he did that to, to actually bring to end, the, bring to a rumbling close the power from below, to, to judge it. And then to also, for anyone who wanted out of manipulation, anyone who wanted out of being used and using other people, for them to be forgiven and set free. That's the power from on high. But then what's more, when he rose from the dead, the ancient of days brought him back from the dead, gave him a forever kingdom, and then sent the power from on high, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said after his resurrection from the dead, wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And when they were, when his followers were, they went out into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Roman Empire rumbled to a close and the kingdom of God flourished. Um, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, the power from on high is the power we need in 2020 and beyond. It's the power we need in this election season. We don't need more hard power or soft power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. The truest and first political act of the people of God is to repent of their sin, of using and being used of the power from below, and to receive the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, to wait for the power of on high. It's a gentle power that will never abuse, that will never get it wrong. We will get it wrong. We will always need to be repenting. But the power that the Spirit of Jesus gives us is going to make us disciples of Jesus 
who live with courage, who live with joy, and who live with sacrifice. And those are the people who can peel back the curtains so that our city, our friends, our neighbors can see, oh, that's what the kingdom of God is. That's who, the king, that's who king Jesus is. So let us repent of being named, coerced, and bullied by the power from below. And let us receive the naming, the grace, and the gentle strength by grace of the power from on high. Next week, we're going to see Daniel and his friends get tested as all disciples of Jesus are tested. Will the formation of their childhood hold strong under the seduction of power, or will they be faithful and pay the cost? I look forward to studying this book with you, to seeing this story unfold, and worshiping the Ancient of Days with you as Daniel pulls back the curtain and reveals him once and for all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.